You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. In this episode, I talk with Chris Lestrino about online private markets, equity crowdfunding, how to value, analyze, and rate private businesses, how that process is different than it is for publicly traded companies, and much more. I've recently entered the world of equity crowdfunding myself as an investor, and I have found this space absolutely fascinating lately. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris, and I'm sure you guys will too. Let's get into this week's awesome episode with Chris Lestrino. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Chris Listrino. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Robert. Really excited to be here. Let's kick off the show, talk a little bit about you, let the audience get to know you a little bit better. Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story. I graduated college about, I guess it's seven, eight years now from Boston College and went and got my first job where I definitely thought I was going to kind of change the world. I was working at a management consulting firm, thought I'd help the biggest companies in the world solve their hardest problems. and while I learned an incredible amount, I also ended up learning how the real world works. And maybe that's not necessarily always the case. And spent a lot of my time working for private equity clients. For those who don't know what private equity is, basically every company that's not Google or Facebook that trades publicly that you could access in your Robinhood account were the types of companies that I was working on behalf of to sell their businesses to other mega funds that had lots of money to buy private companies. And it was really during that time that a spark went off in my head where I started to ask myself the question of, wait a second, why can't I invest in these private companies? I thought I was seeing some really cool deal flow. And I was the one running all of the research and diligence. And I learned that there was all these rules that existed that said that basically non-accredited, aka non-millionaires, couldn't invest in startups and private companies. And I thought that was crazy. So back in 2014, I ended up Googling around why that was the case and learned about the regulations that existed and learned that something called the Jobs Act had been created in 2012 that was going to let anybody be able to invest in private companies and kind of change that paradigm. And I got super psyched about that idea and you know, really basically have ended up dedicating the last many, many years of my life to this cause. Started a fintech blog, ran that for a while, started getting myself invited to events, finding my way on the PR list, even though I still only had a couple hundred readers going to major conferences, getting on awards lists, and meeting all of the major names of financial services and fintech that were trying to kind of disrupt this space. 
and allow anyone to be able to invest in the private markets. And so anyway, that ended up being acquired in 2018 by the founding chairman and CEO of Napster, if you remember Napster from back in the day. And that was really kind of the beginning of building King's Crowd to provide people with investment research tools for this new ecosystem. The only reason that I actually even remember Napster is from the social media movie or the Facebook movie. I forget the title. That's the only reason that I even remember Napster. But yeah, you mentioned King's Crowd. It's your current venture. It's the business that you started. It's a ratings and analytics service for online private markets. For those who don't know, what exactly is an online private market? And then part two of that question, what is equity crowdfunding? You alluded to it. You mentioned that private investors can invest in these private companies. I'm guessing that's through equity crowdfunding. So talk to us a little bit about that as well. Yeah. If we take a step back, right? if you have a Robinhood brokerage account, a Merrill Lynch account, a Fidelity account, whatever your services that you use, when you open it up and you can invest in stocks, what's occurring is that brokerage account is integrating with marketplaces like NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, where companies actually list their stock for sale. Right. So go to the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ and they'll say, we want to list our shares for sale. And then they become available on those marketplaces. And that's how the public markets work. That's what's happening. What's happening in this new online private market ecosystem is there are players like Republic.co, WeFunder.com, SeedInvest.com, StartEngine.com. You go to any one of these. And what they're doing is essentially they are building the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange for private companies. So a company like myself, King's Crowd, can file some forms with the SEC and they can go list on one of these marketplaces a number of shares that people can buy. And then anyone can go and typically with as little as $100 actually invest into a company like ourselves or any other startup that is deciding to raise capital online. So it's very much the equivalent of the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, except in this case, it's for the early days companies that typically in the past would have only had access to venture capital, private equity, or bank loans. And now there's a new source, which is retail investors and other alternative financial investors. Why did businesses need equity crowdfunding? <laughs> it's kind of a, do people need air to breathe, right? Companies need capital in order to thrive. It's the lifeblood of any early stage venture. You need money. And I kind of joke, but it's true. You know, Capital is a commodity. And wherever founders can get capital, they need to go and get it. You never know what's going to happen as you move forward as a business. And you're always going to need 10 times more capital than you actually think you'll need in 10 times more time. So founders and companies are turning to equity crowdfunding as another vehicle of raising capital for their business that's needed in order for them to take the steps they need as a business. Common ratings and analytics businesses that People listening to the show are probably familiar with might be Morningstar or Moody's or Standard and Poor's. What does a ratings and analytics business do exactly? <laughs> it's a great question. Sometimes I get blank stares and I'm always trying to figure out what's the best way to explain King's Craft. Sometimes I say it's almost like Yelp for restaurants, right? But it's for startups. And I try and find different ways of explaining it. But very simply, what you're trying to do with a rating service is help people contextualize the quality or of an opportunity or an investment. So in the world of public companies, a Morningstar, an S&P, a Moody's, essentially they're looking at the fundamentals of a business. They're saying, okay, 
Let's look at the financials. Let's look at their competitive advantages. Let's look at the execution of the management team. Let's look at the quality of the management team. Let's look at all of these key factors of a business and then put it into a score that can help people know whether or not it's good business. And it's you know, a very simple idea. If you get a one, typically that means there's a lot of issues here. There's probably a bunch of red flags. And if you get a five, hey, we feel pretty strongly about this investment opportunity that a lot of the fundamentals of the business are really good. That, by the way, does not mean that it will end up being successful. But what it does, it says in this moment in time, when we look at all the factors of the business, it looks like a good investment opportunity, especially in comparison to the other opportunities that are available to you as an investor. We're doing that exact same thing, except we're using the types of fundamentals and things that matter specifically to startups, which, by the way, are very, very different from public equities. We talk about Morningstar and Moody's, which provide those types of like star ratings that you just mentioned. But you also mentioned, I've seen King's Crowd related to similar services like The Motley Fool and Seeking Alpha. One of the big things that those two companies do is actually provide investment research reports, like actual three, five, 10 page reports about companies and not just a rating, a five star rating or a three star rating. Is this available for private businesses as well through King's Crowd? Is that something you're doing or are you just the star rating type business right now? So we do in fact have both. What we say is we initiate coverage on about 30% of companies. So what we do is for ratings, we rate 100% of companies using all of our quantitative measures. So literally every company that raises via one of these online marketplaces, we collect over 170 data points and spit out a score for those companies in a quantitative basis. From that, we narrow our universe dramatically to a group of companies that are really interesting. And then we initiate further deep dive coverage of those organizations. And we'll actually go and write up analyst reports. We have top deals, which is kind of our strong buy rating. We have our deal to watch, which is kind of our buy rating. We have neutrals and we have underweights where we're calling out companies with lots of red flags. And like I said, we do that for about 30% of companies and we do provide that deep dive. Reason being, there's still a lot of investors in this market. It's so new. It only came to fruition about five years ago. It only started to really be known by more of the general masses maybe two years ago. So we're still in the very early days of this market. And a lot of people need extra handholding and they want that deep dive research really to help them understand what it is they're looking at when they're looking at a startup, which for them is so incredibly different from the typical investments that they're making. So when you are analyzing a private business, what are you looking for? How is it actually different from analyzing a publicly traded company? So if we focus on early stage companies, which I think is probably the most exciting investment opportunity for most people and the one that most people want to get into and are doing online right now. So when I talk about an early stage company, we're talking about pre-seed, which basically means, hey, I have an idea on a piece of paper that I'm going to present to you. I put a, a small team together and we're raising these funds to actually make this a real thing. And then there's seed stage companies, which is we've made this a real thing. We have a product, we're in market, and now we're iterating to figure out how to actually sell this thing and make some money. So those are the, your early, early day companies, right? It's, a, it's the Apple in the garage. It's Google in a garage still. Very early days companies. So when you're looking at those companies, it's funny, as part of regulation crowdfunding, which is one of the regulations that enables this space. You have to provide consolidated past to your financials that are typically audited. It's a pretty light touch audit, but by no means can you commit fraud in those things. You can't make up numbers. They're real numbers. 
And in those very early day companies, I will tell you, typically the financials look pretty poor. In the world of public stocks, most people are looking, most importantly, at financials and revenue metrics and earnings per share and how profitable are they and how are they growing their profitability. So people really, really focus on the financials. In this world, financials matter a whole lot less because they're early day companies and none of them are going to have very good financials. If they do, that's a boom. That's fantastic. If they've already found a way to thrive really early on, terrific. But if not, we have to recognize that, okay, that's not the most important thing. What are the other key factors that matter? So in early day companies, it really comes down to market opportunity, right? Do we think that the market they're in, that they're going after, do we think it's a really huge opportunity that's going to continue to grow over the next several years? And typically you're looking for multi-billion dollar plus type market opportunities that they can go after. And you're looking for a space where there's an unmet need, where you think they're extremely differentiated and can win out because they're so much more exceptional than anything else that's out there, right? Think about the taxi industry with Uber and how absolutely horrible it was. And now Uber comes along and has this really unique, innovative solution. Most people would say, how are you ever going to win out in this market where you have medallions and all of these powerful forces that be? But they came out with something that was just exceptionally better for the consumer. And that's why they were able to win. And by the way, it was a really huge market. So you're looking for big market. You're looking for experienced founding teams, teams that even if the founder is not the most experienced or the young person with the idea, they're surrounding themselves with the right people. That's so, so important. And then you're looking at who else is in market and is already trying to compete with them. So it's a lot more about the things around the business. And then do I believe in this management team and the ability to execute on the vision that they have? So those are the types of things you're looking at. Whereas with a public company, like I said, you're looking at lots of financial metrics. You're thinking about you know, how they're going to grow 2 3 4 5% per year. While you care about the management team, typically at that point, you know the board has put a really exceptional team in place. So that might become a little bit less of a worry. So it's a lot more data-driven on the financial side. Whereas in this world, it's much more about the fundamentals of the team, the idea, and the opportunity they're pursuing. So what are the major red flags then that you're looking for? I'm assuming that it's probably the inverse of everything that you just mentioned that you're looking for good characteristics on. But for me, like when I'm analyzing a public company, one of the biggest places that I look for red flags is in the financials. There are a lot of other places too, industry, market outlook, that type of stuff, the more qualitative stuff. But the biggest thing for me usually first is quantitative financial red flags. So with that not really being a, an option for equity crowdfunding and private businesses, because like you said, the financials just aren't complete yet. What are the big red flags that you're looking for? I think there's kind of three major things that I look for. The first one is team. So again, it's funny how many people tell you they're serial entrepreneurs and you realize that means they had a lemonade stand and then they had an ice cream stand. They're kind of making up their entrepreneurial journey of sorts. There's a lot of extremely inexperienced folks out there and that's okay. By the way, I was extremely inexperienced when I started this business three years ago. I had never run a business before. So what did I do? I tried to surround myself with advisors and people that have been there, done that before. At this point, we had the former chief counsel officer of Bank of America, who's our chief legal officer. We had the former CTO Dow Jones Business Intelligence Group as our CTO. We're advised by former founder Napster and the former CIO City. But really, really experienced, much smarter people than I around me that I can learn from, grow from, and ask questions to when we run into problems. 
So teams where, you know, they kind of hype themselves up and have absolutely nothing around them to support them. That is typically a worry for me because can they actually execute? That's the first big thing. The second thing that I'm looking at is valuation. So like anything in the public markets, it's the same thing. You want to look at what their market cap is or the share price, those types of things. Well, in this market, it's the exact same thing. So what value are these companies putting on themselves? Because it is actually up to the founder to decide what valuation they want to take for a round of funding. And basically, for a pre-seed through seed stage company, for those that don't know, what we typically see is anywhere between like 5 and $15 million. That's kind of the going price of a good idea and a decent management team. When they go above those figures, you want to understand why. So if you're saying you're worth 50 or 100 million today, you better have a darn good reason why you're valuing yourself at that price point. And if you can explain it and you say, listen, we're a biotech company, we developed a special technology, it's been 30 years in the making, we just formed a company around it. That's a much different story than saying, well, we're in the ride hailing business and all the companies are worth billions. So of course we're worth 100 million on day one. Then that's a, a reason to run for the hills and stay away from that investment opportunity. So we definitely look at valuation. That's a major metric. I think it also just helps you understand how critical the founder is of their own business and how realistic they are about the opportunity. And then the last thing is you want to think about the upside, right? So when you're looking at these opportunities, these startups that you can invest in, if the valuation is $5 million and they're in a $100 billion market, you go, okay, even if they capture a small share of that market, they're going to end up being a pretty darn big company. But if they're valuing themselves at $50 million, and it turns out that they're a brewery in San Diego who wants to open up one more location, and if you kind of map it out, the whole opportunity is about $50 million, then that might be a reason to say, well, there's not really any upside here for me. Why am I taking all this risk when the upside is essentially not there? So you want to look at your upside, you want to look at the current valuation, you want to look at the team. If any of those are drastically off, for me, those are typically mega red flags to stay away. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com host. That's Airbnb.com host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. 
It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. What is the most common issue with companies looking to raise capital through private markets from the perspective of an investor? What is the biggest, not the biggest, but the most common red flag that you see? I would say the most common red flag is when founders think that coming to the online private markets is a, if you build it, they will come type of initiative. So they're like, well, I created an offering page. I got my financials together, created a deck and a video, and I'm good to go. So the rest will take care of itself. Typically, those founders fail. And typically, it becomes pretty clear that they're not putting in any effort. So one of the things that a management team needs to do, especially early on, is to prove that they can execute. And there are founders who go out there and they just think, yeah, we're going to raise $5 million. We'll probably be done with that in a month. We're valuing ourselves at $50 million today. And we got this great idea on a piece of paper. Oh, we got this one amazing advisor who did this thing 10 years ago. And then they, they go live and they can't figure out why they're not raising any money. They're not making any phone calls. They're not cold calling people. They're not marketing. They're not doing anything. And I think to me, that's typically a red flag that if they can't get a dime into this deal on their own, why in the world should someone who doesn't know them invest in them? I'm not sure it's a, a privileged thing. I think it's just a, an ignorance thing and going into this with the wrong mindset. But it definitely, to me, signals someone who is not putting in the work that they need to in order to be successful. And that also, to me, signals that they're not going to execute across the business and all of the other various things they're going to have to do as a founder. And it becomes very visual. And you can see that as an investor and say, they've been live for three months and they've raised $5,000. Maybe I don't go over there. Now, on the flip side, we want to invest in every company that has raised a ton of money. There still be underlying issues just because they've been good at marketing or maybe just FOMO, maybe. Maybe they saw that they were raising a lot of money. So people just started piling in without really understanding what was going on underneath the business. I personally have seen that a little bit on the platforms. You know, I completely agree with what you said in terms of being a common issue, but I do invest in some of these private companies through these platforms. And there's been some that I've raised a lot of money and I'm just like, I don't know. I just I, I can't get there on that. So I'm wondering if there might be a self fulfilling prophecy or a false sense of security just by looking at how much money a company has raised. Could not agree more. That's absolutely correct. When you raise no money, that's negative signaling. When you raise tons of money, that's great. But then you need to dive deeper. So I always encourage people not to get caught up in the FOMO. It's probably one of the largest issues with the venture capital industry and why we saw between Theranos and WeWork and Juicero and Quibi, billions and billions and billions of dollars just be burned and wasted. I mean, it's really kind of sad, right? And why that happened? Because FOMO. Because, oh, well, they raised a ton of money. They must be too big to fail at this point. There must be something that I don't understand, and that's why they're great. And so I always say before you make any investment, do your due diligence. But yeah, 
They raise a ton of money. First off, ask why. Second, say, okay, that's great. There may be a reason for that, but let me go do my own deep dive. Go into your own research. Make sure you feel confident that it's not just the FOMO and the hype and people are excited about it, but that it's actually fundamentally sound. And believe me, we've called out some companies where they did raise a ton of money. But when you looked at the fundamentals, you went, whoa, 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 management hasn't executed. Their valuation is bloated. And we have seen that ourselves for sure. So just because a company raised a lot of money certainly does not mean that it's a good investment opportunity. And you still need to do your own due diligence, if not more so, because you need to understand why there's all that hype. I'm glad you mentioned Theranos because... Back in May, just last month, I just fell down a rabbit hole of Theranos. I don't really know why. I read the book. I read a couple books on it. I watched a couple documentaries on it. I just was totally into it. It was super fascinating to me. And so when you were talking about looking at who the founder has surrounded themselves with, I was like, yeah, you know, I agree with that, of course, in general. But there are some cases where that's not always necessarily 100% foolproof because, I mean, look at what she did at Theranos, right? She had some of the most amazing, amazing people in the world especially in that space, I mean, even military leaders on her board. So you would think some of these people that have the highest integrity, that would be some of the smartest people in the world that are around her. So you would think again, all right, she's good to go because who she surrounded herself with. But as we saw, that wasn't necessarily the case. And of course, all these businesses aren't going to be Theranos, but it's just something you got to consider. Yeah. Listen, you're absolutely right. And in any world, there's always going to be the outlier. And Elizabeth Holmes, you're talking about a kind of pathological liar, narcissist to the moon type of thing. You know, she's a very special case, but nonetheless, it goes back to that same thing that I was just talking about, which is just because there's a lot of hype, just because they have amazing people, still ask yourselves the questions and try and dive deeper. Because you're right, you could have a blind spot and we can all get caught up in the excitement of the moment and meeting this amazing founder who really excites us. And you just need to do your homework. As a side note, I'm still shocked that the court cases are still going on for that whole situation. It's kind of crazy. Actually, they just, I believe they just restarted again last month or within the last couple of weeks. So if anybody's interested, you don't know what we're talking about with Theranos or Elizabeth Holmes, I highly, highly recommend you go check out the documentary and read the books. And it's really, truly fascinating and might even help your investing as well, other than just being a form of entertainment. When We talked about red flags. We talked about how these private businesses are different than public companies. And we talked a little bit about what are the good things you're looking for. What about hidden gems? Like, What's something that not every business is going to have? And that's okay. They could still be a good business. But what's something like little that you've noticed that you're like, okay, this is kind of correlated to success that a lot of people are overlooking? Some of the things you mentioned, like a good management team, et cetera, a good market, those are like kind of bigger level things that I think a lot of people will look for. What are some of the hidden gems maybe that not everybody's thinking to look for that might correlate to success in business for a private company that's raising money? One of the things that I think makes a founder really successful is their ability to be resourceful. And it's interesting. I've definitely seen companies that have raised next to no money and have accomplished an incredible amount. Right? They've built out a full-fledged product. They're in market. They're generating pretty significant sales. And you realize if you look at it that maybe they've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe they bootstrapped the whole darn thing. And it's kind of amazing because there are so many founders that can raise millions of dollars and still say, well, we're pre-revenue. You know, We're working on a product. We're perfecting this. We're perfecting that. 
And there are just some founders where you look at the financials and they're already generating a million plus dollars within a year or two of starting the business and have only raised a very small amount of funding to date. And that to me signals a founder who knows how to get stuff done, regardless of the resources that they have. And I'm always really, really impressed by that. And that to me is just an early indicator, extremely good execution. And I always think, well, what could they do if they actually had the resources they truly need at their hands? And so that's kind of a a hidden gem I look for is, let me really think about what has this team accomplished with what they've been able to receive to date. And I think that's just a really interesting signal that's a little bit harder to decipher, but really, really good insight on the founder. How does somebody who is very quantitative focused get comfortable with investing this way? And I think a lot of people listening to the show, I know at least me personally, I'm very numbers focused. I'm very quantitative. So sometimes I do have a hard time analyzing businesses from the qualitative perspective and not making investment decisions based solely on numbers. So how does somebody like that, that is usually relying on numbers to make investment decisions, get comfortable with making investment decisions in very qualitative type investments? There's a few things that you can do. First off, one of the things that we've tried at Kingscrowd is find a way to quantify what typically we haven't thought is quantifiable. So for instance, founder experience. Well, how do you quantify that? Well, let's go look and really figure out they are a real estate technology company. How many years have they spent in the real estate industry? How many years are the people who are at the C-suite or whatever executive level have spent years in the real estate industry? They say that they're a serial entrepreneur. How many years have they spent building companies in the past? Do they have any exits? How many exits do they have? And if they have exits, was it a kind of low, medium, high in terms of how positive it was? Those are the types of things where you can either create buckets, kind of low, medium, high outcomes for past exit, things like that, or you actually go ahead and you quantify things like industry experience. You quantify things like the market size and the market growth rate. You quantify the number of competitors in a space by going and doing the research and figuring out how many competitors are in that space. You quantify how much fund you think they're going to need to raise in order to be successful. And do you think that they can get there? So you try and put parameters on everything to start to quantify this out. I think that's one of the best things that you can do. And then as we kind of mentioned before, this is a game of building a diversified portfolio where you're going to put preferably 20, 30, 40 investments into that portfolio over maybe one to five years. And you're hoping that, I think in an amazing world, you're getting 20, 30% end up having extremely positive outcomes. And maybe a bunch of them go under and some of them do okay. And that's kind of the portfolio theory, right? Is you have a, a handful do exceptionally well. And that kind of nets out your losses and puts you into really positive territory. So as a kind of quant heavy person, one of the things that you can be looking at is, okay, I'm getting in at a 10 million valuation just to help myself understand what that means. Currently, I'm in Google, which is worth over a trillion dollars. So just for Google to double, it has to go from a $1 trillion to a $2 trillion company. For me to double my investment in this company, it has to go from being valued at 10 million to 20 million. And if it goes to 100, I have 10x. If it goes to a billion, I have 100x. So it starts to help you understand just how quickly the numbers could get really, really big. So it's a bit of a different risk-reward curve, but you can quantify out how much bigger of an upside opportunity you have on each one of these things, which lets you get comfortable with the fact that you also know many of them may very well go to zero. Let's dive into that 
diversification piece a bit because overall, I'm personally not a huge fan of diversification. Warren Buffett says that diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. And I generally agree with that. I think it's more for publicly traded companies, public investments than it is for private companies. I think it's different for those. And, and I generally agree that you should be a little bit more diversified. What about starting small? Can that be another way? At least that's what's worked for me, at least, is when I first got started in this private world of companies, I just started small. And I haven't diversified a ton, to be completely honest, but I've just kept my positions relatively small so that the downside risk is capped for the most part. And I'm okay with the risk that I'm putting in there. I'm not putting in hundreds of thousands of dollars that would be very bad if I lost. I really like that. End of the day, it's uh, decide on a strategy and stick to it. So you might be a person who's very risk averse, but wants some exposure to this market. So you might say, I'm willing to put $2,000 into this market each year, but I want to be super diversified because I want my risk to be as low as possible, despite this being really risky. In that case, you should be putting $100 into 20 different investments and being as diversified as possible. But you might be someone like yourself, Robert, where you say, you know what? I want to make five real bets on companies that I'm just psyched about and really believe in and understand the business super well and feel as though I know something that others don't know and I'm all in on those companies. But by the way, I've capped myself to what I'm willing to lose and that's okay with me. If that's your mindset, I mean, it's your money. So you can do whatever the heck you want with your money. As long as you're okay with that, you say, let me just start small and make a few handful of bets that I really believe in. Absolutely. I think that makes a ton of sense. I did the same thing starting out. I was like, I don't have a lot of money. But what I can do is 250 bucks into four or five companies this year that I'm just absolutely stoked about. That's what I was willing to put in and willing to lose. And I was okay with not making a ton of bets because I really wanted to make ones that I cared about. So absolutely, I think that's a great strategy. And the beauty of this space is that you can start small. It used to be, of course, you had to be accredited and all of that. But you would typically be asked to write fifty dollars to $100,000 checks as an angel investor. Now you're being asked to write $100 checks. So it's much, much easier. You know, the barrier to entry is much lower to be able to do that. You mentioned that returns in these companies are a little bit different than public stocks because a lot of those companies are large and you're going from $500 billion to a trillion is a double, right? Or $1 trillion to $2 trillion is a double. And that's a really big gain, whereas $10 million to $20 million isn't as big of a hurdle. But when we talk about the stock market, generally speaking, I think a lot of people are comfortable with saying seven to what, nine, 10% is pretty average for the stock market overall, depending on which index you use. How does that compare to if we could index private companies? What are you seeing for like an index return on private companies? What is standard or average if there is one? Unfortunately, we haven't really had one to date. If you look at the entirety of the venture capital industry, the I believe the median kind of return of venture funds going back to like 2013, 14, because typically it takes eight, nine years for funds to start to return, is somewhere north of like 12, 13%. But by the way, in that, that's like every venture fund in the world. So you have all of the absolute dumpster fire venture funds that have just completely failed mixed in with the ones that have done exceptionally well. Typically, I think what venture funds are kind of shooting for when you, you, know, you do the IRR metrics is somewhere north of 20 to 30%. 
Now, obviously, the best vintages of funds, the funds that have done exceptionally well, have been in the range of in the hundreds of percents and even the thousands of percents. Obviously, that's what everyone's kind of looking for, right? That's the holy grail. The way that I think about it is you take whatever, three to 5% of your entire investment portfolio, and you say, okay, I'm going to put in these much riskier assets. Personally, I'm looking for a return of north of 10x on whatever money I'm putting in. So if I put in a thousand, I would like to see over the next five to 10 years to come out with at least $10,000 when I'm all said and done. That's what I'm personally looking for. And the way I think about it is I have two to three that go to 100x plus, have a couple come out neutral or I maybe get a one or two X, and I have a couple kind of go to zero. That's kind of the blend that I'm looking for, but it can be a really, really powerful asset. So that's kind of the indexing of it. But just to kind of give you an example, one of my advisors, they had put in as a family, I think they put in around 25K in Uber way back in, you know, when it was first starting out, like the earliest, earliest days. And that ended up being worth over $100 million when all was said and done. Now, I am not trying to say that you're going to wake up and that's just going to happen. You probably you may end up making hundreds of bets and never have anything like that. But the way that I think about my startup investment portfolio is this is potentially life-changing investments that could become worth something magnitudes more than I could have ever made just by doing my day job. And that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm looking for. But at the kind of bare minimum index level, I personally am looking for somewhere around a tennis. And the chances of those types of 10x or 100x or the Uber returns that you just mentioned, it's going to be very, very, very rare. I mean, it's very rare in the private market, but I would say probably even more rare in the public markets to invest 25,000 and it go to 100 million. I think you have a better chance, albeit still very slim in the private markets than you do in the public markets. What is interesting too is that is possible though. Like we talk about it's a very small chance, but it is possible. There was a company, I believe it was Beyond Meat. But correct me if I'm wrong, that was on, I think, WeFunder. And of course, they IPO'd, right? And now they're a publicly traded company. So you could have been one of these people that got in early. And I don't know if the return numbers were the same as Uber or 10x or 100x. But if you got in that early that they were in equity crowdfunding and then they IPO'd, you probably did pretty well. That's exactly right. And there's been a few pretty big winners. I know on WeFunder way back, there have been uh, Checker and Zenefits, and even both of those, I think, are in the, like 30 to 50x plus territory today. So, yes, there are opportunities. Listen, you have to play the game in order to have a chance to win. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but you have a chance now. You didn't have a seat at the table before, you do now. So, you have to make those investments and hope that one of them kind of pans out in that big way. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say. 
Hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Beyond Meat was actually on our crowd. I knew I had heard about it on one of these platforms, but regardless, the point is still there is that you have these opportunities to invest in these types of businesses where you don't necessarily have that opportunity in the public markets. Now, how do investors actually realize these returns? We're talking about 10x, 100x returns. How do investors actually get that? How do they get the liquidity? Let's say they invest in a business that's worth 10 million, it becomes worth 20 million. How do they realize that return other than just an IPO? I think that is pretty self explanatory. Yeah. So right now there are two ways and then there's a third emerging way. So very quickly to hit on what you said, IPOing, right? So you go, you list your company on NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, go through a roadshow, you display it to the public and now you're raising a bunch of money and now you're traded actively at all times. So that's the first way. By the way, that way, typically for the past decade or so, it's taken eight to 12 years for companies to get to that point. From idea on piece of paper to IPO is typically eight to 12 years. So if you're investing in pre-seed seed stage companies, think about that timeline kind of being where you're at. The second way is through an exit. So a lot of companies just get acquired. They decide, hey, we've built a really great product or service, uh, something of value add. We've grown it pretty big. We don't think we're going to be a billion dollar company on our own, or we've already become a multi-billion dollar company and we don't want to be public. Let's go get acquired by a much bigger company than our own. And that happens all the time, by the way. If you pay attention to the Wall Street Journal and all these things, I mean, there's acquisitions literally happening every day of startups from these major corporations that are just constantly buying up companies. So that's your second way. And I would say that can happen anywhere between two and 10 years. We've seen a few companies. I know one that we rated really positively was acquired within nine months. Another was acquired within three months of the race. So that happens too, where it's just, they raise some money, they get some traction and someone comes and scoops them up. It's that right moment in time. 
So those are the two key ways that you typically could get liquidity. Just to be clear, they take a lot of time. The third way that is emerging is called secondary shares. So basically, once you own your shares for a period of time, typically one year as a non-accredited investor, at that point, you can actually sell those shares via a secondary transfer platform. Now, in order for that to work, there has to be a buyer who wants to buy up your shares. There needs to be an aggregate amount of supply and demand. There needs to be enough interest in investing in these private companies and buying and selling their secondary shares. And by the way, you need all of the infrastructure in place and the marketplaces in place to enable that. I can tell you that I know Start Engine has launched their secondary transfer platform. I know there's a couple of others that have begun to do the same. There's some players like Rialto and T0 that are building out solutions that might be able to sit between these parties and provide a secondary market for people to trade in. It's becoming real. There is, in fact, some real liquidity for Start Engine investors if you were invested in the actual business of Start Engine. But we're seeing things move in that direction. And literally, if you want to understand what it is, it's just what the stock market is, where anyone, any retail investor, any individual can buy and sell their shares into the market and there just needs to be a buyer willing to buy it. In the current public equity world, it's extremely liquid, meaning there's lots of buyers, lots of sellers. In this new private market world, it's going to take time. So it's going to be way less liquid where you might say, hey, I bought it at $5 a share, I'm willing to sell at 20 and you don't get a buyer. That can happen, but that's the third way and it can provide a lot more immediate returns. But we're going to have to let that play out over the next two to three years here. I personally really, really like that third option. I actually personally, full disclosure, have invested in Start Engine, the platform itself, not just on the platform to other companies, but actually in Start Engine itself when it raised money because that secondary market, I just I personally think that that's going to be huge for financial markets in general, but also Start Engine. And so for me, that was actually what kind of got me comfortable with this whole space was I just I really believed in that idea, and so I put some money into it. We talked about how. I struggle with not being quantitative. And I did a little bit with that investment, but we talked about market opportunities and the leaders and things like that. One of the great things about having this podcast and even listening to the podcast is we had the founder of Start Engine on the show. We had Howard Marks on the show back on episode 85. And so I got to talk to him and learn more about the business. And that allowed me to get more comfortable. We even had Kevin O'Leary, who's a spokesperson for Start Engine on the show. That was episode 58. So these types of things were able to let me get a little bit more comfortable with these private investments. One of the other pieces I want to talk about is when companies raise money on these online private marketplaces, there are a bunch of different security types that are offered, which is, I think, new for a lot of people because in the public markets, we typically just see common stock. Of course, there are other types that can be publicly traded. There are warrants, etc. But for the most part, it's just common stock. So of the different types of securities these private companies offer are revenue sharing, convertible notes, what they call is SAFE as an acronym, S-A-F-E, preferred equity, common stock, and there are some more. Let's talk about a few of those. And the first one I want to talk about is SAFE. And again, that's SAFE as an acronym. It's not necessarily a SAFE investment. What does SAFE stand for and how does it work as a security? It's funny. I actually don't exactly remember what it stands for, what the actual letters stand for. If you have it written down somewhere, I'd love the refresher because everyone just says safe in this industry. So you get comfortable kind of just saying safe. It's a simple agreement for future equity. There we go. So basically, a safe and a convertible note are very similar to one another. 
Safe is utilized a lot on a platform called Republic.co, one of the largest platforms out there. And all a safe and a convertible note are is essentially what you're saying is, hey, this is an early days company. To be honest, we have next to no idea of what it's worth. Instead of trying to figure that out now and create common shares to accommodate new investors coming into the round, we're just going to peg a value to the company. We're going to say the cap on the safe or the convertible note is $10 million. And then we're going to apply a discount rate. And the discount rate you know, is typically 10 to 20%. And what that says is in a future round of funding, and typically it's, it qualifies what that future round of funding has to look like, at least a million dollars. It has to be the Series A with an institutional investor. There's typically parameters put in there. Once it qualifies for a, a funding event, then your convertible note or your safe will convert into actual equitization. But you will never pay more than the cap. So if you go out and you raise at $10 million valuation in your Series A, and you would put in money on a $10 million cap, whether it was a safe or convertible note, you will convert at $10 million. You won't pay any more than $10 million. But if there's a discount, then you'll actually only pay $8 million. So if you raise at $10 million, you get a 20% discount. So you would only pay $8 million. Now, if they go out and they raise at a $50 million monster Series A, huge valuation bump, and you got in with 10 million cap, you will only pay a $10 million valuation. So as soon as that funding round hits, you're actually being converted at the 10 million cap, even though it's now worth $50 million. So you're kind of getting a large discount to what that future round of funding was without having actually had to put a true value on the company on the day that they were raising capital. Basically, it's a simple agreement to make life much easier for founders and investors to kind of get on the same page and get something done without having to figure out the rigmarole of managing individual investors and creating stock certificates and all that type of stuff. So when you buy a safe or a convertible note, are you paying for the right to then invest at that cap? Or are you putting that money up front and then if and when it gets converted, you already have that equity? Or are you buying that right? And then when that time comes, you have to put up more money to actually buy those shares. How does that work? Yeah, there will be kind of explanations of the various things that could happen. Typically on these platforms, there's no like, okay, and then at a future event, you have to put in more money. Typically, it's just, we're going to take the money you gave us. And then that's going to whatever dollar amount you had, whatever the share price is at that point, you'll convert at that share price. So no, you're not typically putting in more money. Now for institutional investors, there can be those types of callouts where they Come up with an agreement that in the future, not only going to put in, you know, not only going to convert, but you have to put in X percent into the next round, things like that. The one major red flag caveat that I want to call out in many ways, when you put into a convertible note and is safe, you're almost putting into a like a loan with you know an interest rate where technically the money could just be given back to you with interest, or the money could just be given back to you if the founders decided to do that. That's the red flag. That's what I want to call out. There are some provisions that people will put into safes or convertible notes even, where they will say, we have the right, we have the option before the end maturity of this convertible note or safe, because typically there's a time period on these things. They'll say, we can actually just give you your money back. If we end up getting this explosive offer, we can give your money back with some interest, which obviously as an investor is a terrible thing. You've just taken all this risk. And now they could just one day wake up and say, actually, we're doing so well. We really don't want to give up equity in the company. So we're just going to give you your money back with some interest. That's what you don't want. And you can look for those provisions. Do they have some sort of buyback provision that lets them basically 
are you out of the deal in the future? A few people have done that. A few people have gotten called out very hard on that in this industry. And so we don't really see it, but it's something to keep an eye out for and just make sure there's not that clause in a safe or a convertible note agreement. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's super, super valuable information. And I mean, it sounds like that's when it would be applicable is when you mentioned a 10 million cap, let's just say a $50 million valuation. If I was the founder, I would probably want to institute that clause that says, hey, I'll just pay you a little bit of interest because it's probably going to be less than that $50 million valuation that I just raised money at. So for the founder, it's better off. But as the investor, like you said, it's, it's not what you want. It's a terrible experience. Founders shouldn't do it. I think it's really bad behavior. And by the way, when you typically hear from my perspective, when people say, oh, you know, convertible notes are bad or safes are bad, these are the instruments that literally every venture capitalist in the world utilizes. They're not bad unless there's bad provisions in them. Typically, safes and convertibles are completely fine. So one of the other things that's pretty common, at least in the private business space when it comes to valuations, is this two terms, pre-money and post-money valuations. I think there's some confusion around that. Talk to us a little bit about what a pre-money valuation is, what a post-money valuation is, how they're different. Great question. So when you're raising capital and you're actually setting a price on the company, right? So let's move away from talking about convertible notes and safes. This is common shares or preferred equity, where you put a dollar in, each share is worth a dollar, and now you own you know, one share, and that's whatever percent of the total shares there are. So this is when you're actually putting into a company where they've decided to value that company at a certain price on that day. So pre-money is basically, if you say, okay, I'm a $10 million pre-money company and I'm raising $5 million, what that says is post-money, you're worth $15 million on paper. Pre-money, you're worth 10, you raise five, now your total is 15. So post-money, you're worth $15 million. What that also tells you is that the company is about to sell one third of the company. So if you are an existing investor, and they say our pre-money valuation is 10 or our post-money is 15, you now know that you've basically been diluted about whatever, a third of your total investment. So even though you might have put in a million bucks and owned 10%, at the end of them raising 15, you're being diluted a certain percent. So pre-money is what you're worth before you raise money. Post-money is what you are worth after you've raised the money. What I've always found interesting about this relationship between pre-money and post-money is that Post-money valuation is pre-money plus the money you raise equals your post-money. And I find that interesting because there's no premium given for the amount of money that you just raised, right? Like if you think about it, a $10 million business that raised $5 million, in theory, intuitively, $5 million in cash that you just raised should create more than $5 million in value. So your business is probably worth more than $15 million, if that's what I would argue at least. And so I've always found that really interesting between that dynamic. It is an interesting dynamic. I will tell you that a lot of founders, maybe their last round of funding was 10 million. Now they go out and say, well, we're 20 million pre-money will be worth 25 post-money. So typically they're building in their own premium and they're making sure to capture that. Yeah, that makes sense. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I truly had a great time. I thought this was an awesome episode. I know the audience is going to love it. I know that I certainly did. As we wrap up the show, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can go to learn more about you and learn more about all the different things that we talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to learn more about King's Crowd, I mean, the best thing you can do is go to kingscrowd.com. That's K-I-N-G-S, 
crowd.com. And you can kind of learn everything you want there. Check out our site, dig around, play around, hopefully learn a ton. And then the other thing I'd encourage you to do is go and check out the marketplaces we mentioned today. WeFunder.com, SeedInvest.com, NetCapital.com, and learn more about this space. Get comfortable, get your feet wet and make that first investment because it really is a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun. I think it's super fascinating. And I personally wish I had known of King's Crowd before I invested in Start Engine. I think I still did my due diligence and I'm still comfortable with it, but I would have loved to see the research and the ratings on Start Engine on King's Crowd prior to making an investment. I think it would have been a cool piece of my research. So I'm glad to have at least found it now. I look forward to using it as I move forward and make more private investments. Chris, I'll put a link to all those different things that you mentioned in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Robert. Have a wonderful day. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.